as we need night. Could you imagine just having all day? You need the night. We need the rest. We need a different perspective. You know, the first time I actually kind of came into full realization of utter darkness was um, when I was in Big Bear many years ago. I was an adult, um, but uh, just finished college, and I was at my cousin's cabin up in, in Big Bear, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and I remember this sense that I was in utter darkness. You ever had that experience? And so there I was, and boom, I woke up, and I remember hearing something in my, my mind saying, you are in complete darkness. And so I opened my eyes, and I couldn't see anything. I jumped out of bed, and I couldn't find the door. I was disoriented. And I remember finding the window, and I peered out the window, and it was total darkness outside. There was, it was you know... I don't know what was going on at that time, but there was no moonlight whatsoever. Actually, there's a scripture verse in Matthew about that. When the moon, even the light from the moon is gone, it's so dark. And so I used the, the wall to actually get around and find the door and turn the lights on. But I remember that moment, and I remember the feeling of that utter panic and hope, just helplessness uh, of being in the dark. 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And then in verse 7, we read, of course, that we are to walk in the light, not in the darkness. And so we've become preoccupied with keeping the lights on. And we really don't have a place for darkness. And, and this has kind of been my kind of sense until I picked up a little book during my recovery, and I read it three times, learning to walk in the dark by Barbara Brown Taylor. And Barbara writes this book, and she gives a totally different perspective of spirituality than I think I grew up with. She says that we have really kind of adopted a solar spirituality. And a solar spirituality is a spirituality that keeps the lights on at all times. We always focus on what's good, and, and, and we, 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 we focus on the things that make us happy and and which is all good, but we avoid dark things. And what she is proposing in this particular book is that what happens when darkness strikes, a job loss, or she mentions several things, a marriage falls apart, or a child acts out in some attention-getting way, or you pray for something and it doesn't happen the way you want it to, or, or you have a heart attack. What about living a lunar spirituality. And a lunar spirituality, she describes, is where this divine light waxes and wanes in the season. And so sometimes you have light, but sometimes there's a season of darkness. See, Psalm 107, verse 4, remind us that they wandered in the wilderness in a desert region there were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners of misery in chains. So the scriptures remind us that there is a season of darkness. There is a place of darkness. Taylor goes on in the book to say that, you know, when we reflect on the sun, it's always the same. But think of the moon and the moonlight. The moon changes 
every night. It's a little different, and it's a better reflection of your soul. And I think one of my big points this morning and of this series, Walking with God in the Dark, is this. A truer sense of who you are is the condition of your soul when darkness strikes. Think about that a second. I think that's where I'm going. It's something I've been learning. I'm not sure why. I'm not totally exactly sure why God settled on this particular theme for the next few weeks. Not only for me, but also for you since you're listening. But God has a lot to say about the dark. Every single one of us will go through a dark season in our life. We really will. Confusion, hardship, anything that scares us is darkness. It's really what it is. And, and so I want to focus on it because I want to encourage us not to panic. God's still in control. God cares so much about you that he's taking you through a season of darkness. And so what I want to do, the, kind of the, the first place in, that, that we, we see Israel, kind of the first scene of Israel, is actually in darkness. I've missed this. The Hebrews have been released from slavery 400 years. They're out of this dark season of bondage. And they've been released. They're now free. And they are headed to the, to the land that flows with milk and honey. But they're not there yet. In Exodus chapter 13 all the way to chapter 19, God wants to first meet with them. But he meets with them in darkness, in the wilderness. Why? Why is that? So out of slavery, headed to the promised land, God wants to meet with them at Mount Sinai on a mountain. And God will come down and they will stand around the mountain and Moses will be their representative to go up the mountain in darkness. And we find various, several verses, and I just want to show you a couple of them to orient you, and then I have several things that I want to say about this darkness as we get comfortable with darkness today. And so here's the first slide. Uh, It's the first reference in chapter 13. I think we're going to look at chapter 13, verse 20. It says that after leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Ethan on the edge of the desert, and by the day... The Lord went ahead of them by the pillar of cloud to guide them on their way by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they would travel by day or night based upon what God had for them. So it says, neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of light by fire by night left its place in front of the people. And I think our first kind of introduction is a cloud and a fire. So fire at night, light at night, but darkness during the day. And God would guide them by his presence in the cloud and in the fire. That's our first reference. That that begins the journey. But God opens himself up and, and says, I will be divinely present as a cloud. But then as we move forward, God is going to give them some instruction at the mountain. He prepares them along the way, and then in chapter 19, we encounter our next passage. Again, 
describing God in relationship with his people. It says the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud. Notice that. God is going to come. God is going to be present in a dense cloud. So the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. So why is that? In a cloud, that's how God wants us to trust him. That's what it's telling us. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And so by chapter 19, he begins to prepare the people. Moses will then gather the elders and the people together. And the thick cloud will be present. But they will prepare themselves. And God says, consecrate yourselves and the people for three days. And then I'm coming to you in chapter 19. And there's a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet in verse 16, so that all the people were in camp trembled, it says. And Moses brought the people out of camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was in smoke, it says. It's described as being in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like a smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered with a thunder, it says. And so we learn that it's getting darker and darker. And then Moses goes up and receives the Ten Commandments, we know. In Exodus chapter 20, he hears God speak and and it's his voice. And he's talking to him. And then we're reminded again in chapter 20, our final verse this morning. It says this, And when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we'll listen. Don't don't have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The the people remained at a distance while Moses, it says, approached the... Now, the cloud here, Hoshek in Hebrew, actually changes to Arafel, which means dense darkness. So when God finally meets with Moses, it's changed from a cloud to a darkness. A thick, dense darkness. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 22, in verse 10, he bowed the heavens also. And, and, and it's describing God. He comes down with a thick darkness under his feet. That God has this thick He made dark canopies around him, a mass of waters, thick clouds of skies. All throughout the Old Testament, we, we're not familiar with this kind of language. Isaiah chapter 60 now moves us in verse 2 from this idea of darkness as a, re- as a description of what's around God, how he is kind of clothed or surrounded or what we would say protected. But now the darkness in Isaiah turns to gloom. And there's several references where darkness and gloom come together. The sense of despair, hardship, In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2, For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you in the darkness. 
See, and then in Ezekiel 34, 12, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. You see God rescuing in the darkness. And there's this theme that we have about what darkness does and what it represents in the Old Testament. Now, we ultimately know that there is a great battle between darkness and light, and Jesus is the light, and he will consume it, and there will be light. And everywhere there's darkness, light breaks through. Light breaks through. But there is a season of darkness that I want to focus on, that I want us to get comfortable with in Scripture. And I, and I want to talk about Exodus, this section, and I want to talk about it these three ways. First of all, that God leads us into darkness. The second thing I realize and I learned from this passage is that God speaks to us in God, darkness. And he may not be speaking, but he's getting your attention. But the third thing I realize is that God matures us in darkness. These are the three ways in which God uses darkness in our lives. And I want to look at the first. And I realized at the first service that uh, I only got to my first point. And so we'll come back next week and I'll finish it up. But I wanted you to know where we're headed. My wife was right. I had too much material. Stick with the first point. So in, uh, so in the first point that God is the one who's leading us into darkness, it's not a mistake. What he's doing in your life is not a mistake in this moment. We may feel like it, but we learn over and over, chapter 13 of Exodus, verse 5, God will lead you to the land of the Canaanites and the land filled with milk and honey. God is leading, it says in chapter 13. Verse 21 of chapter 13, he will go before you and lead you by day and by night. Again, a leading. And then we learn in 19, verse 9, I will come to you in the thick clouds. So there's movement. God leading us and God moving towards us. Do you see that? You get that sense? And then again, in 1917, Moses brought the people to meet God at the foot of the mountain. There's an interchange. There's an exchange but there's a movement toward and into darkness. And this is important for us to begin with understanding how God leads us in this movement because what it communicates to us is that God is in complete control. And you're out of control and you don't like it and you don't know what's going on, but God's in complete control. He's orchestrating it in your life. See, just as God was with Job, just as he is with Moses, Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord at the Jabbok River, Elijah, even Elijah, who then in 1 Kings chapter 9 comes back to this very same spot, Mount Sinai, by the way. Many years later, Elijah will come back and Elijah will be in a cave in darkness, and God will show up as a thunder, as an earthquake, as fire, and yet he will speak in the still, small voice, the utterance of a breath. That's all it is. Elijah hears God not in this profound thunder, but will hear a breath. And we're going to talk about that in the next week or so as well. But this morning... I want you to get the sense that over and over and over, 
Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord will then pass by, it says. You know, uh, what happened to me um, on February 22nd was really a shock. I mean, as I said on, during Easter, that I was the wrong guy for a heart attack. Really. I mean, I've had a free look at my arteries. I've been stented. I mean, you know, watch what I eat low cholesterol, all sorts of things. Everything you're supposed to do, right, to avoid this. And yet it still happened. And there were several things that I mentioned kind of went wrong during that morning that I felt like I could handle it. And that was kind of my thinking. I'm going to handle this. People kept asking, why didn't you call 911? Why didn't you call 911? Why did you wait so long? Because I was handling it. Really, seriously, that's how I felt. You know, I got up three times before the ambulance got there, and the first time was to get water, and so I started sucking down all this water. I felt really thirsty. And then I laid back down, and I realized, okay, this isn't going away. This isn't dehydration, which I suffer from often, kind of overexhaustion and dehydration. And my body, you kind of, I just feel it, and I, don't, I feel like I can't recover. I can't get over this. And um, it's happened several times before, and I've pushed through it. And this time, I wasn't pushing through it, and yet I was still convinced I could handle it, right? And so uh, I got up a second time thinking, well, I better just take a precaution. I'll take a baby aspirin, because that's what they say you need to do. And of course, unfortunately, I was out of baby aspirin on that day in the cabin. So I was going to go get more aspirin before the evening. And yet, so here I am without it. And so I got back on the couch, and the pain continued, and I was dizzy and breathing hard and couldn't get it under control. And I thought, well, I want to get that pain under control. I'll go get my nitroglycerin, which I've been carrying for three years, carrying it for three years for a time like this. I went over to my DOP kit. I call it a DOP kit. I don't know what you call it, but it's a... It's a medicine kit, and I dumped it out on the bed. Just dumped the whole thing out, and I knew it was in there, and it was there. It was a little small glass, little vial with teeny little pills. You're supposed to put one under your mouth. You can take up to three, and I guess like 15 minutes apart. It opens up all your blood vessels to get blood moving, so you're getting some blood to the heart and hopefully some more oxygen and all of that. Little did I know that I had a 100% blocked artery, LAD, the left anterior descending, that supplies oxygenated blood to the heart. Um, but uh, as I mentioned, um, it was a good thing that I had worked out the day before because that helps in the whole process. And yet I couldn't find it. I couldn't focus. And I had this, this moment where I knew I had about five seconds left of consciousness. I was really going down. I looked, I actually looked over by the bed and said, I'm going to probably land right there, which is really stupid because I was separated from my phone. I had called and texted my friend Dean, and Dean is a, um, a good friend, and he and his wife live up in Arrowhead, and he wasn't supposed to be up in Lake Arrowhead that weekend. He was supposed to be in San Diego at a conference with his wife, but he came home. I texted him. I said, could you come over about an hour before this? And he said, I'm on a conference call. And uh, I didn't push him on it. Not a mistake. And so I knew I had just a few more seconds to find it. I couldn't find it. And uh, 
So I decided, I'm done. I can't do it. I can't find it. And I remember saying to myself, as I walked back, got back to the couch, dang it, I missed my opportunity. That was a big mistake. I remember saying that. Dean called. All I could get out uh, on the phone was my heart. He said he was coming right over. And um, I remember lying on the couch waiting now, laying on the couch waiting for Dean to arrive. And uh, uh, Dean, of course, shows up. But before he shows up, I had this amazing thought that I believe came from the Lord. Dean's my buddy. He's an NFL football player that's retired. Played for Philadelphia Eagles and Denver Broncos and LA Raiders and had a, quite a career. He's been 6'5", like 270-pound guy. And yet he has, uh, he's waiting for hip surgery. Um, so he's not in great shape. By the time he actually got there, he was huffing and puffing and had got himself through the snow and he looked worse than actually I did. <laughs> I thought, this is not going well. He's the wrong guy to have on your side. And uh, so that was another issue that I was concerned about, whether Dave Dean could actually get me out of the cabin if I needed to get out. He had to sit down and, and uh, regain his, uh, his consciousness. Um, poor guy. Um, but May 20th is coming for him. Um, so I missed that moment with nitroglycerin. I laid down and I remember looking out the window and here's the moment. And this is what God began to teach me. I looked out the window and I said to myself, I am not going to die today. I didn't know what was really going on, but I knew that. I remember hearing that. It was as clear as day. I was absolutely confident that that came from the Lord. That, I, that he had given me a word and that was it. I didn't know where I was being led into. Obviously into a season of darkness. Um, but my friend Duncan McBride was a buddy of mine, dear friend. And, and um, he was, uh, he's a swim mate of mine on my swim team. And several weeks ago I returned back to the swim pool. And I uh, was in the locker room telling my story. And Duncan and I were standing next to each other. And, and he says, can I ask you a personal question? He asks me personal questions all the time. And he's always needling me. And uh, he, uh, he, he really asked a serious question, I think. He said, were you crying out to God? Did you ask for forgiveness? Were you reaching out to God in this moment? And I thought about it. And I thought, that's such an interesting question. And my response was, I actually wasn't. No, I wasn't crying out to God. I wasn't asking for forgiveness and getting my life in repair before this great event, thinking that that may somehow uh, uh, change the course of the next few hours. And I turned to Duncan and I said, you, you'll understand me when I say this. I heard clearly that I was not going to die that day. That's all I knew. And I was not in panic mode. I wasn't afraid. It was just this sense God was in charge. You know, I feel like I have presumed to be in control of my life, really, all my life. I mean, all the things that I've done, even up to that point, dang it, I am not going to have a heart attack. In fact, I'm not going to call 911. I'm not going to call for help. I'm going to push through this. And there was a deep sense of pride, deep within me, that I began understanding that God was leading me into. See, it makes sense uh, to me when I read a book called uh, St. John of the Cross, The Dark Night of the Soul. 
and he wrote it many, many years ago. Many people have kind of interpreted the dark night of the soul as this deep, dark darkness of misery and gloom that God puts you through. In fact, that's not what John of the Cross is talking about at all. It's a poem that he wrote, and then he interprets the poem with these meditations. And he begins, O dark night, happy the chance. But then another stanza later, it says, O happy night. See, for John, it was a happy night, not a dark night. Because what happens in the darkness is you meet God, you encounter him. In fact, it's a love story of coming into a season in your life where you willingly begin the process of purging your life of things that you've been holding on to your whole life. That you begin your faith with this sense of optimism and excitement and the lights are on and God's speaking and there's so much going on in your life early in your faith and then as you mature, God takes you through darkness. And you wonder, where is he? And you're wondering, I, I'm not experiencing him, but he's there. He's present. See, in Exodus, God is there. You just can't see him. The darkness is enveloping. And you have to go through that as you mature, as we grow. So as you get older in your faith, what happens, John the Cross says, is that you begin to go through a process of purgation. You're beginning to purge the things in your life you're holding on to. And for me, it was pride. This sense of strong arrogance, of defiance, that dang it, it is not happening to me. I'm going to push through this. I'm going to get through it. In fact, in Exodus chapter 19, it says in verse 10 that the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today. The process of consecration is the same process of purgation, of cleansing oneself, going through that process of evaluation. And I think that's a season of darkness and where I begin, even in my own journey. John of the Cross says, God puts out the lights to keep us safe. To keep us safe. If we can stay in the moment in which God seems most absent, the night will do the rest. It will. See, the lack of, the lack of experience of God and God's kind of uh, closeness means that we are beginning to live by faith. That we truly are moving into a new season. That trusting God is near. And it's happening, although we're not experiencing it. And that begins the first. The first of a long journey of what God wants to teach us in darkness. And so I ask you, you know, what, what is it that God may want to purge from your life? You know, what is going on in your life right now that, that might be something that God wants to take you through that you're holding on to, whether it's bitterness, or this isn't happening to me, or the, how dare he take me through this, or why am I going through this, or why is my friend or family member going through this? See, there's a lot of, we wonder, 
We're like Job. And yet what we learn in Job, like we learn over and over in Scripture, is what happens inside of Job as he goes through this process. That he learns that Satan is wrong. Satan is defeated. Darkness is defeated in a sense. That Job is serving God for not a want. That there is nothing that Job wants more than simply the presence of God in his life. And he has to come to realize this. And it's not all the accolades and all the rest of it that he started with that he no longer needs. He's come to a new place. And it's a process, isn't it? We're on that process and we're learning and we're growing. And, it's, and, and, and we're, we're being purged. That's where we begin. And so this morning I want to encourage you as we, we have communion together. We're going to continue our worship. and The worship team can come on up this morning. And, and let's continue to really give, pour out to the Lord our worship to him. Because in worship there's healing. There really is, I believe that. I've seen it in these last few months. In my worship with the Lord, I have seen healing, several healings. And uh, I want to call out to the Lord for healing. I want to call out and praise and believe God that God is in the process of doing that in our lives. But we first begins with purgation. And as we go to these beautiful tables, and we're going to remember Christ, remember this. Ultimately, what did he do? In Matthew chapter 27, we understand from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, from about noon to three, there was total darkness over here. There was darkness that encircled Christ, our Savior, who was suffering. And we are called to come through the darkness to the table. And every time we come to communion, we are breaking through that darkness and coming into that experience and seeing our suffering Savior, who will then, what will he do? He will take the darkness. He will consume the darkness. That's what Jesus does. He consumes it. We experience it. We encounter God in it, but he consumes it. And that's the faith and the confidence that we have this morning. Let's pray. So, Father, guide us in this time this morning. Guide us into a time where we reflect and as we, we even imagine going walking up to the table, we are pressing through a darkness. We're pressing through, God, this, this protection that you've put around yourself. And as we push through it, your presence is there. Your presence is near. You're coming to us. You're meeting 